My name is Dr. Larry Rosen. I'm a professor emeritus of psychology at California State University, Dominguez Hills. And since emeritus is Latin, I always try to let people know that the Latin translation means old fart. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> what it really means is I've been around for a long, long time. <laughs> and, uh, and hold on for one second. Hi, hon. I'm on Skype call. Um, uh, what it means is I've been around for a long time. I've been uh, teaching for 45 years. I've been studying the impact of technology for 33 of those now, um, starting way back when we didn't even have what we would consider technology these days. We just had large computers. And um, so I've watched the changes in technology over the decades I've written seven books. Great. Vent points. You just you just froze. Oh, you got you're still on. Good. Yeah. Um, published lots of research. Um, I do a variety of kind of research, ranging from um, observational studies to survey research to laboratory studies to neuroscience research. So we run the gamut, um, all surrounding the question of what is the psychological impact of technology. So um, if we were to imagine the digital age as we experience it at the moment as a as an experiment, which has been running for the last 20 years or so, what would your evaluation be of its impacts at this point? What are the causes of concern and fundamentally, do you think we'll look back and think it was all worth it? It's interesting that you, that you phrase the question that way because I, I firmly believe that we are in the middle of a grand experiment um, on a lot of levels and that the experiment uh, has massive numbers of subjects, um, the billions of people who have smartphones. And I think that, that the issue is that we're looking at a, a changed world and, and the change, I really look at the change being sort of um, promulgated by um, a few things, uh, obviously starting somewhere back in the wide web came in and in the nineties when it became very popular, um, when you started, when, when you started seeing everybody jumping on their computer to get on the web I mean, people even called it the web back then. I don't think anybody calls it that anymore um, or the net or on the internet. It's so, so funny to think back so far um, but life really changed um, about 10 years ago, and two things really started to change. One was the um, sort of creeping advent of virtual connections, um, primarily uh, through a, a variety of modalities, interestingly, starting you know, obviously earlier on with email, phasing in through short messaging systems, through social media sites, um, to where we are today. Where you know, in a decade, a decade plus, we've all got multiple social media accounts. Uh, we have at least an email account, if not multiple ones. We have at least a short messaging system, if not multiple ones. And we are spending massive amounts of our day communicating. But the problem is, is that we're communicating from a distance with people out there, many of whom we know. By the way, the research does show that most of the people we have virtual with because we know them personally, um, but 
we're still not gathering the the benefits of full communication. And the other issue I see, and I think this is really much more germane to your topic, is that we are spending inordinate amounts of time now with our faces pointing down at a screen and not pointing up at the world around us. And when we have nothing to do, instead of letting ourselves steep in our thoughts, um, letting our brain turn on that default mode network that signifies that that we're daydreaming, mind-wandering, being creative, uh, having our brain just find disparate ideas and put them together, we opt to grab our phone and do something with our phone. And so what we're seeing is is a continual increase in the amount of time spent looking at the phone. And I, we have some data on this, um, some of which has been published and some of which is brand new. Um, for two years in a row, I had students in a very large upper division class, average age in the mid-20s, 23 to 25, so older students, put an app on their phone that monitored how many times they unlocked their phone each day and how many minutes it, may, it remained unlocked. So a year ago, in um, spring, no, actually two years ago, in spring 2016, so right around um, the early part of 2016, students put the app on their phone all semester. I mean, they ended up, uh, we started late, we had some issues, but, but basically the app ran for about eight weeks. So for eight weeks, we're monitoring this. And the typical student opened their phone, unlocked it um, 56 times a day for 220 minutes, which if you do the math, that's just slightly under four minutes an unlock. Um, we don't have data on what they were doing. Um, there are apps that will monitor that. But from everything we can see, what they're doing is mostly communicating. Um, a year later, so a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, we did the same thing with an identical class with the same age, same characteristics they always do. Um, the average number of times they unlocked their phone was only 50 times a day, but for 262 minutes. Now you're looking at an average of slightly over five and a quarter minutes per time they're on there. And this time we asked them a lot more questions about what they were doing. And it turns out that the primary thing they're doing is using social media, which means they're spending their time not connecting with their brain. They're spending their time basically communicating, although there are people out there like Sherry Turkle who would argue that it's really not communication, it's just connection or sips of communication. Um, but they are basically not allowing their brain any kind of free time. Um, we also, interestingly enough, um, we have this model of what, causes them to do this. And the two primary parts of the model are poor executive functioning and sort of technological anxiety. Some people call it FOMO, um, but ours is more um, not being able to access the internet, not being able to have your cell phone, um, feeling dependent on the technology. So it's a little different than FOMO. But those two variables tend to be predictive of everything we find, every use of technology, course performance in a in that my course, sleep problems at night, health, mental health issues, it seems to be a pretty robust model. This year I added in another variable called boredom, which very few people are studying. Um, and I think the reason they're not studying is because it's very difficult to pin down what exactly is boredom. 
Um, we used a couple different measures of boredom. And interestingly enough, boredom did not necessarily fit in the model at all. Um, it was usurped by the anxiety variable, basically. It correlated with course performance. The, the less likely you were willing to be bored or the more bored you got, really the less likely you were willing to be bored, um, predicted poor course performance. And part of what now we're going to look at is, so what is boredom? Because boredom really is sort of the, the cause that flips you into a creative or open-minded mode. Hmm. And um, I think that's an interestingly open question still. Um, but what you do notice if you look around is that, that we do not allow ourselves to even be bored for a moment, an instant. Mm, absolutely. So so uh, would you say that, um, that at this point into the in, into this massive experiment where we've billions of people uh, participating in this experiment, that the that the, the, the results at this stage are troubling, concerning? On, and um, I think on they are, balance, is it worth it? <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing. I think on balance, we're still kind of in the middle. Um, we certainly, I mean, you can't deny that you get a lot out of your smartphone. It is everything. I mean, that's part of the problem is it is everything. You have an idea of a song you want to hear, boom, you can hear it on any one of many music um, venues. Uh, if you have a movie you want to watch, you can almost always find it and watch it on your phone. If you have a TV show you missed, you can watch it. If you want the news, you can get it. I mean, there's there's nothing you cannot do on that phone. And so, of course, it's an attractive appendage. And what we're seeing, what is more and more disturbing to me, is that we're seeing more kind of physiological signs that this is not good for us. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, we... Um, we're in the middle of finishing up an experiment, my colleague, Dr. Nancy Cheever, experiment, where she brings people into the lab and she tells them, just put your phone next to you on the, on the table. She hooks them a couple of monitors on their fingers. One is a GSR, galvanic skin response, and the other is heart rate monitor. And then she says, you're going to watch a video and we'll ask you some questions afterwards. So very simple. Um, a couple of minutes in, she says, oh, your phone is creating problems with our electronics. We're just going to move it on a table behind you a few feet. No worries. And then what she does is start texting them. And we've done, um, we've done this to Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes. We've done this to uh, journalists on Good Morning America. We've done this to Katie Couric. Uh, uh, we've done this to, to many people on film. And even on film, what you see is as soon as the text message comes in, an instant skin response. Mm. Boom. A spike in your skin response, which indicates arousal. Now, we don't know if it indicates positive arousal or negative arousal because arousal is arousal. It's just your skin response. But in this case, it's pretty clear that it's a negative arousal. And when you ask them later, their reaction, well, I wanted to be able to get that text message. I wanted to know who was texting me. Mm. So we're clearly looking at physiological responses here. And part of what what I'm concerned about is that this technology touches our, our mental status, our, our, our way of thinking in a particular way that loads it towards us 
being constantly in sort of a mild state of fight or flight reaction. Meaning that every time we get a text message, we get a visceral response. And if you tell people to pay attention to this, they will notice this. Their heart skips a beat. They'll say, oh, my heart skipped a beat. I got a text message. Is that good or bad? I don't know. Don't know until I see who texted me. It's a good text or a bad text. doesn't matter. It's still a visceral reaction. And that visceral reaction comes from chemicals in your body um, in the in the anxiety uh, area. Um, predominantly, the one that people know is cortisol. And you get a little bump of cortisol, but there's a lot of other chemicals in there. There's alpha amylase, there's, there's uh, adrenaline. Um, there's, there's a lot of chemicals that, that are reacting, but the ones that are easiest to, um, to measure are cortisol and alpha amylase. And they all show the same thing. If you cannot access something, um, if, you, if you get anxious, that there's a spike in these chemicals. And a little bit of these chemicals is not, not bad for you. I mean, we're not talking about a chemical that's going to destroy your body and your brain. A little bit of cortisol is what wakes you up in the morning. A little bit of cortisol is what keeps you going during the day. And you don't fall asleep in, in, in front of your desk. Um, a little bit of cortisol is good. A lot of cortisol is bad. And so we see what's happening. Um. How I in in the book in your book the distracted mind one of the things that you really focus on is the impact that this is having on our attention and on our ability to to focus. I wonder if you had any thoughts about the connection between uh, our attention and our declining attention and our imagination. So imagination in, in I suppose in two ways. Firstly, in the in the way that we normally think of it, but also in our, in terms of our ability to imagine the future and to look forward to the future as something that we think of as with optimism or positivity or, or hope or whatever. Well, the, the easiest argument is, is a, any type of imagination requires uh, abstract thought and requires deep thinking, not superficial, mild, low level thinking. Uh, and I think part of what the component that goes into that kind of abstract thinking is time. You literally have to have time to let your brain pull the pieces together from various areas to think abstractly about something. You cannot just simply think about abstractly about something for 30 seconds and boom, you've got it. You have to let your mind wander. You have to get into that, that probably into that default mode network or at least some network in your brain that's allowing your brain to put together ideas from various places because that's really what abstract thinking is. It's taking ideas from various other places in your brain, other things you've heard, other things you've done, other things you've thought, and putting them together in unique but valuable ways. Um, we don't have the attention span to do that anymore. And it's not just young people. Um, it's everybody. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you see this in the UK. We we see this everywhere. We were just in in Scotland um, a couple of months ago and note how gosh the people here look just like us in America. Their phones are out all the time. Um, they're always using their phones constantly. People you know tourists obviously, but also people living there constantly on their phones constantly. And if you're constantly on your phone and constantly distracting yourself because the phone is distracting. Um, just the fact that we have alerts and notifications which are designed 
to distract us, designed to keep us focused on something they want you to be focused on, is half of the issue. Um, you can turn off all your notifications, turn off all your alerts, and yet you will still get distracted. So what is what is the culprit at that point? And the culprit is your brain. The culprit is we have gotten ourselves into a, I want to say a rut, but it's not a rut. We've gotten ourselves into a habit. And the habit is, um, for, in many ways, very beneficial for us emotionally. The habit is we have a lot of people out there that we connect with. And we connect with them often and quickly. We've tr- we've taken them and we've trained them literally like Pavlov's dogs, trained them and ourselves, that if they text us, they're sitting there anxiously waiting for a text back from us. If they post on Facebook, they're anxiously checking in to see how many likes they got and what comments they got. And we're not immune to this. I mean, I posted something the other day on Facebook and like checked in a few, four or five times during the day just to see what kind of comments I got, what kind of likes I got. And I thought, well, this is pretty strange that you're doing this. You just can control your own behavior, let alone how can you help, hope to help anybody control their own. But the issue is you do you do have to do things to release that part of your ability to think. And the half of the time that alerts and notifications you can take care of. You can turn them all off. You can put your phone away if you want. But that's not going to help because the other half of the time the alerts are coming from inside your head and they're telling you, Oh, I haven't checked into Facebook, you know, in the last half hour. Or, or I wonder if somebody commented on my Instagram post or whatever it is. I must just and check. That, yeah, or just check in. Like, I'll, I'll better check Facebook. And by the way, the, way that, the interesting way to note this is I think much of it is not unconscious, but at the low level of consciousness, is at the end of every hour or two, at least with, I mean, I, I have an iPhone, so on the iPhone, See how many apps are open in the background. Mm. I'm always amazed that I go, when did I open that app? Nobody opened it for me. At one point, I must have opened that app. Was it a mistake? I would have noticed. And they're usually, if I check every hour, I'm, you know, an older kind of guy. You can't see me, but I'm an older kind of guy. guy, 67, soon to be 68. There's 15 apps open in my background. And most of them... Seemingly, I opened them for a moment, checked something, maybe looked at something else, got distracted, moved on. So, so what I'm hearing you say is, is imagination needs time and imagination needs attention, and these technologies deprive us of both. Right. They conspire. I think it's it's worse than that. Yes, they do deprive us of both, but I think also you have to factor in and there's a, there's a lot of work going on on this the tech companies role in this um app developers role in this the phone companies role in this they want you to be there they make money when they get your eyeballs on their app their website whatever it is and so they conspire to do that there was a really interesting article the other day that suggested that one of the things that we should do is that we should all take our cell phones and change the setting to grayscale. I saw that. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I have a Fairphone, and, and I, don't, I don't think I can do that on a Fairphone. What kind of phone is that? A Fairphone. It's like um, sort of ethical. It's like a smartphone that's that's not made using the materials that cause all the wars. Ah. 
Okay. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I mean, I think the whole the whole point is an admission that that colors that are used um, are attractive, and that these companies spend a lot of time choosing the colors that they use in their ads and the motion that they use in their ads to distract you, to gain your attention. And so we're fighting we're fighting both the outside world, sort of this the the business world, and our inside world, which thrives on communication. So what you have is this major collision of kind of collusion almost between the tech companies and our brains. Their goal is to get our brains attention and they do an excellent job of it. <laughs> um, so much so that we are spending 262 minutes a day glued to that smartphone. Mm-hmm. I read them. Um, I read weeks um, my new class and start them off with it. It's going to go up to 300 minutes a day. Um, I read um, Douglas Rushkoff's book, um, Present Shock, where where he, where he talks about that, and he says actually until until recently the only people who had to be on call all the time for this constant stream of data coming in that they were expected to respond to immediately were emergency responders, and they worked three hour shifts. <laughs> that was an interesting way of looking at it. Yes, well, and and I mean I, I was talking to a guy who's a, a medical doctor. Um, older was talking is you had the pager and are you are you still there i am yeah we, it was glitching occasionally but i'm uh, but it's fine okay so so what he was saying was that in the old days it was the pager and you just knew the sound i mean you got used to it that it would beep you go okay there's an emergency you'd call in he said now we don't have pagers anymore. So you're constantly checking your phone because you're getting texts, you're getting connected. They have emails through the medical doctor's offices now where they have to respond to their patients. So it's a much complex world and much more um, anxiety provoking mm. because it feels like always on 24 seven. And I think that's part of what our brain is feeling. It feels like it has to be on 24 seven. And so, so how how would you evaluate the state of health of our of our imagination in 2018? The state of health of our imagination. I would say that, although there's, as to my knowledge, there's no data on this. I would say that our imagination or our ability to think creatively um, is probably on the decline, um, exactly in the opposite trend of our time spent on our smartphone. Because mm. some people would say, and I, I interviewed a woman called Deborah Francis White, who is a kind of an actress, an actor, comedian, blogger, podcast person. And she said, well, you know, when I was a child, we came home from school and we sat and watched Scooby-Doo on the television uh, uh, and we just watched it. Now, now kids come home from school and they can make videos, they can make their own TV programs, they can put them on YouTube, they can have their own radio station. Uh, you know, in theory, all of these technologies offer us the potential to be more creative and imaginative, but we don't use them like that. Right, I think that that's the goal. It always was the goal. Um, but they would be, they would allow you to, to open up your creative juices, um, which is why, by the way, people rush to put them into into school systems mm. 
because they thought it would help students think more creatively. And in, in many cases, it has. Um, there's some really good examples of technology that allow you to, to think more creatively. Um, but then you face the problem of anxiety. These put, put the technology in front of the kids, and it, what it does is it spikes their anxiety of needing to check in, and so their brain goes elsewhere. Um, I, I think it's really an issue of figuring out how to grab, re-grab our attention. And I think it's, it's, it's a multi-layer issue. First of all, for anybody at any age, it's got to be a personal issue. You've got to say, do I really want to spend my time with my face pointed down? Do I really want to spend my time doing everything on this box and not experiencing the world? Um, and that the answer to that is usually, yes, I do, because what's in this box is much more intriguing than the real world right now, mm. which is a little scary. Um, but I think also it's an issue for parents. It's an issue for educators. It's an issue for uh, product developers. It's, it's a, a vertical issue that we're not doing a very good job of addressing because the very first question you asked me, the, the benefits are so huge in using these devices that it's hard to say, okay, well, let's put a kibosh on it. Let's limit it. Let's, um, let's put on um, – it's funny. The one, the one example I love to give is, is on the iPhone. I don't know if it's on the Android. It probably is. They have a thing called Night Shift where the colors on the phone – will start to shift in terms of the light they give out. Oh, yeah, yeah. From the white slash blue light that comes out, which is very stimulating to your brain and stimulates the release of cortisol, um, to a more pink-colored background, which um, stops the cortisol and stimulates the release of melatonin. And, and it's a noble gesture to put that on the phone, but the problem is, is that I've yet to come across anybody who likes it. <laughs> yeah, because our brain and the argument, the I, right? Our, the argument is, and the argument's the same as the kind of color grayscale argument is. It makes it look not pretty. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of it. Is it's that we've developed a, a tool, and, and whether it's a tool or not, I'm not sure. I think it's an appendage more than a tool. But we've developed this device to be attractive, to to want to keep you there, to have colorful images, to have bouncing icons. I mean, it's, it's pretty powerful. Mm. Uh, just to, to come back to the, I was talking a bit about about the future. You know, it's, it's, it seems to me like, you know, when I was a child, we talked about the future all the time. All the magazines we got were all full of the future and, and nobody really talks about the future so much now it's sort of become very complex and scary and we've seen the rise of these movements both in the US and here in Europe about actually let's go back to the 1950s again actually the 1950s were really great let's go backwards I wonder and it, and it's and it seems to me that that's really really troubling because because otherwise we're just going to wander into a future that's really not going to be great unless we can imagine something else do you see a link between between our declining ability to imagine the future in kind of positive, hopeful ways and the rise of the kind of technology and the attention distracted mind that you've talked about? If your mind is constantly distracted, I would argue that that leaves you a little time for anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I mean, I don't, sorry, I'm chewing in something. Uh, I don't call myself a futurist, 
but I've been studying this for a long time and watching it unfold. I mean, I started studying the impact of technology in 1984, watching it unfold. And even I um, am flabbergasted by the last decade. Um, I don't think Alvin Toffler would have predicted this kind of of radical um, change, even even though he did show that that uh, the waves of technology were coming more and more rapidly um, at us. I don't think even he would have predicted that that ten years after the release of a smart of the major smartphone, that people would be spending four, five, six, seven, eight hours a day using it. Mm. I don't think he would have predicted that. I certainly wouldn't have. Um, but it's here. And if you're constantly distracted, which we know you are, I mean, that's that's the, the distracted mind is kind of a euphemism because we are distracted. We all know that. All we have to do is look to the left and look to the right, and you will see everybody distracted by their phone. Ask somebody to put their phone away for an hour. They won't be able to do it. Um, ask them to put it away for a day. Oh my God, they'll just as soon die. Um, if you can't do that mentally and emotionally, how can your brain function to understand abstract concepts? To to get into the uh, a full discussion of what does it mean? What's the future mean? And if you and I are going to sit and discuss the future, and my phone is right to my left, I just picked up my phone. It says I have since we've talked. It says I have two messages, two email messages, and two text messages, and a notification that I have an interview at two o'clock. So, how can I possibly allow my brain to not process that? Mm-hmm. And what's the, what is the downside of processing everything that comes in as it comes in? And the downside is there's no time left for anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was really struck. I just sorry. I was going to say I think we've dug ourselves a big hole. I, I look at everything like a pendulum that swings, you know, all the way to one side, and then we go, oh, why are we doing this? And it swings back toward the middle or somewhere. And this one's still swinging. Mm. It hasn't reached its pinnacle yet, mm. and I don't see it retreating very quickly because I see that that all we keep getting is better, more interesting apps to play with and more powerful phones and and more robust operating systems. Mm. My phone, by the way, died yesterday. Who did? For a moment. My phone. Oh, your phone? I thought you said your son. I thought, my God. No, my phone. My, okay. my phone died. came out of a movie. My phone died. And I looked at it. And I went, Oh shit. What am I going to do? And luckily I remember that the other time this happened 10 years ago when I had my first iPhone, I, I learned how to do a hard reset on the phone, but I did this hard reset. And what it does is it puts the white apple in the middle and then it just sits there and sits there and sits there. And it took probably a good three minutes to do whatever background work it had to do to recapture my phone that had died. And, um, I'll tell you, the panic during that five to ten minutes that it was doing that, or three to five minutes, was palpable. Mm-hmm. Thinking, we're supposed to be driving home from the film festival that we're at. Um, I don't have a phone. What will I do without a phone? 
what if people try to reach me? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, of course, I have my fiance's phone. Could have used her phone. Um, I didn't really need a phone, but, but the, the, the panic was palpable. Mm-hmm. I should know better. Um, uh, yeah, I was just, I'm reading the Fire and Fury book about Donald Trump at the moment. Uh, the one that's been in the newspapers and so on. And it's really interesting in there where they talk about him having almost no attention span whatsoever. Like, he can't read more than about two sentences. He just gets bored and can't be in a meeting. Unless the meeting's about him, he just gets completely <laughs> bored after about two minutes. It's really interesting. Um, you, you um, in, the, in the book, you, you, you mentioned the thing about um, that would turn your home screen uh, black and white and in the book you offer people uh, tools so that they can be more in control of their relationship with digital media and there's been a big um, furore this a lot of coverage this week about this letter that was written to Apple by some of their funders about the addictive nature of, of their products and you compare social media to smoking uh, at some points in the book can we break is this something that we can address as individuals can we try and manage this habit as individuals or like society does it need a kind of policy-based approach like with smoking policy-based approach isn't going to work um uh, i think it's unfortunately going to take an individualized approach and i think what it's going to take is something catastrophic to happen um Everybody losing their phones for a week, uh, you know, magnetic pulse that that shuts down all the phone systems. I'm not sure what it'll take, but this is not at this point. I don't see an easy way for this to go away. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I mean, I wish it, I wish you could just throw a policy on top. I mean, the smoking policy worked. They put big warnings on the side of packages. What are you going to do? Put a warning on the side of this nice smartphone that says. I just, by, by the way, I just got a text message. I don't know if you heard that in there. I just <laughs> yeah. got a text message. And it's, I could not stop my brain from looking to the left at my phone. I could not stop it from doing that. And I, I'm turning my phone over in a way. <laughs> um, anyway, I don't think the policies are going to work because the only policies that arguably might make sense is to try to get people to stop using the exact device that you're making money on. Mm. I mean, and it's interesting to start with Apple because Apple makes money once they sell a device. They don't really much care what you do with the device. They just want you to buy a new one every year. Um, app developers do care about what you do with their device. And Apple really does care that that the apps that are available for your device are the best possible ones so that you're going to want to buy a new device. Um, really, the onus is on the software developers to stop developing software that's so enticing. But how can you ask a business to not do what their business plan says? Make your chocolate cake really horrible. <laughs> right, so nobody will want to eat it, so you'll go out of business. Yeah. Yeah. So it really has to be a personal decision. I mean, and, and, and quite honestly, uh, that's what everything I write is kind of aimed at that. I mean, I I write a blog, I write books, I do all this stuff. I do research all aimed at trying to explain to people why they have to take personal responsibility for this because it's not going to go away. Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult. I mean, you're, you're looking at probably the most fabulous device um, 
that has come out in the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. And everybody has it and everybody's using it. And it's, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really sexy and it's smooth. It's right. And, and, and we try to get it so it's smooth and feels good and fits in your hand nicely. And the colors are pleasant. I mean, there's a lot of time on making this device um, attractive. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you had any thoughts on the implications of the distracted mind and your research on on activism, on people who are trying to mobilize other people and so on we it feels like we're trying to like yeah we're trying to we're trying to get people engaged in stuff but like you say people's heads are just somewhere else you know what are the what are the implications for the world of activism do you think of of trying to make change happen in this new rather strange world well we know it worked in the arab spring um we know that it was primarily responsible for the the Arab Spring and everything that happened in the Middle East. Um, activism is always helped by connection and communication. So the one nice thing about the smartphone is, is that everybody has the ability to connect with anybody they want to at any time. Um, you can send your message out, broadcast to a large, huge audience. The only question is, is your audience listening? And did the audience have the wherewithal to spend five minutes reading your message? And what we know um, is that if you want your message to get out, it has to be really small because Donald Trump may not be able to read more than a couple sentences, but we can't either. Mm-hmm. People don't read long articles anymore. I'm just as bad. I will be reading a, starting an article in a magazine or something, and I will flip through and go, do I really want to spend 20 pages on this? Mm-hmm. And I will often just read, you know, the the beginning and the middle and the end and go, that's it. I understand the article. <laughs> um, how, how can you create activism if people don't have an attention span to hear your message? Mm-hmm. I do think, interestingly enough, it's going to make people, and it already does, it makes people make their message more slimmed down to the bones. I mean, Donald Trump's messages on Twitter are slim down to the bones in his 140 or 280 characters, whatever he's using these days, he can get out a point pretty darn quickly. Mm. Um, On the other hand, activists can do the same thing. It tends to be that activists tend to have more to say because there's more of a story behind what they're saying, and so they tend to use more long-form kinds of of ways of convincing people rather than using short-form ways. And, And unfortunately... The more distractible you are and the, and the less um, interest you have in something, and I will also argue maybe the less intelligence you have, the more likely it is that you're just going to want to get your news, your information in bits and bytes mm. and very quickly and not be able to then read somebody's you know, thesis on, on why um, anything is happening in any kind of a change, why climate change is horrible and why we, what we can do ourselves individually, what we can do as a culture, as a society, those are all great. And, and I'm sure that, that people write, you know, lengthy 
articles on that, but the problem is is that with the short attention that nobody's going to read it. Who's going to read them? Yeah. As well as books, by the way. I mean, I hate to tell you this is you've written lots of books, but you know, people don't read books anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, I read yours. Thank you. <laughs> so that's one. Um, I wonder if if you had been elected as the president a year and a bit ago and you would run on a platform of make America imaginative again, what might you have done in your first hundred days in office? Boy, that's a really good question. It's <laughs> rare that I come across a question that I haven't been asked before. <laughs> uh, you know, the, really ni- the really nice thing about that question is I must have done now 30 or 40 interviews for this book and everybody says, what a great question. <laughs> <laughs> so, So what I would argue is, in terms of trying to allow people to understand the value of creativity, the value of imagination, the value of mind wandering, which is really, I think the umbrella over all of this is to spend time trying to demonstrate very briefly, very simply all the negative downsides to short attention span, including sleep problems, mental health problems, physical health problems, family relationship problems. Um, you know, you could, you could list them forever. Um, and, and try to, to explain to people in very simple ways that if you don't act like a Pavlov's dog, yes, somebody might get mad at you for not texting them back in five seconds, but eventually they'll understand that you've changed your strategy and that you've backed up and said, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, somebody asked me the other day, somebody posted something on Facebook and she got all panicked because people were reading it and getting upset at her. And I said, well then how about the, and she said, I know why they're upset. I wrote it. It was wrong. I shouldn't have written it. And I said, well, why not do this? Write it walk away for a minute, go make a cup of coffee, make a pot of tea, have a snack, come back and read it again, and then ask yourself, do I really need to sense? Do I need to post this? Is this important? And I think once we start answering those questions, asking and answering those questions, that we're going to go a long way to stopping the knee-jerk reactions that we're having. And we've conditioned the entire world that we all react immediately myself included, you will notice how quickly I respond to your emails. Um, it's, it's the way I respond to emails. It's, it's my addiction. But if I didn't, I have much more time, much more freedom to think, to simply be rather than do. And I think we've gotten into being kind of human doings rather than human beings. And part of being a human being is that we have free will and thought and creativity. We have things that animals don't have, which is we can imagine the future. We can think about the future. We can postulate what we could do in the future, how we might be different or or the same, um, how we might change our world, change the people around us. Um, we have that opportunity. It's just when your face is down in the phone all day and it's just too easy that it's not going to happen. So my first hundred days would probably be trying to explain on a daily basis. Here's another thing that the phone does to you. Here's another thing the phone does to you. Why don't you try this? 
why don't you try to just put it away for 15 minutes, see how it feels. Um, because part of, part of what people think is, well, it's an all or none. It's really a very black or white thinking, but either I have to use it or I don't. Um, and if you want me to give up my phone, you'll have to pry my cold, dead fingers from it because <laughs> I'm not giving up my phone. I mean, and that's what people will feel. They've gotten that attached to it that they sleep with it all night long. Um, so the issue would have to be having people slowly back out and, and helping them slowly back out. To understand that if you can go 15 minutes without your phone, then you can go 30 minutes without your phone. You can go 45 minutes. Not asking you to go a day because that's very difficult. Mm. But once you learn to do that and then you stop reacting so viscerally to incoming missives that you are missing out on, um, it all will become, I think, a little clearer. I think it's going to take time, though. I think 100 days is not nearly enough. You um you mentioned before about the default network, and uh, you know my understanding of that. I did an interview with Jonathan Schooler um, about that and his research on that. And as I understand it, you know you're either in what's the other the executive network or whatever it's called when you're conscious and doing things, or you're in the default network and you're either it's like yin and yang. You're one or the other. Either you're right. doing something or your brain switches off and you go into default network. But we we fill all that time when we could be in the default network, as you say, with picking up our phone and, and, and so on and so on. Is, is it is it um, is it harmful to our brain to be denied to, to not what are, what are the impacts of of not allowing your brain to go into the default network as much as it as much as it might otherwise do? Well, I, I'm not an expert on neuroscience, but I would argue, first of all, I agree totally. You're either in, you're either in the executive network and you're using your prefrontal cortex or in the default mode network and you're not. Or you are, but, but you've limited use of it. Um, I think part of the problem with not being in the default network is that's what makes us human. And you're removing a very strong component of our humanity. And really, if you're, if you're kind of always in the executive network and you're always making decisions and having your attention focused elsewhere and working on something and then switching your attention, working on something and switching your attention, you're really more like a robot. Mm. You're not like a human being. Um, the, all the things that you could do there are, are often just very robotic kinds of things, and, and robots can't do the kind of things like have the default mode network allow them to think about, speculate about what might happen in the future with X, Y, or Z. It's not built into robots. They can they can do it from a, a very concrete point of view, but when you try to make it abstract, they can't. And so I think that that if 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 we end up getting more and more immersed into this um, executive network, as Jonathan said, um, I think that we're going to find ourselves um, less happy. Because mm. at the end of the day, often what makes us happy is being able to just kind of free think about, you know, what's, what's great about the day, what are we looking forward to, you know, what are we doing, how are our kids doing, whatever whatever it is, and that's not in your executive. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's going to be a bit tougher for the AI guys to come up with an AI that can do the default network, I guess. Well, they try. Um, I mean, there's some very interesting AI out there right now, but... Yeah. Um, it's mostly very concrete. It's 
not very abstract. Yeah. You can't, you can't ask uh, Siri to talk to you about, uh, uh, you know, what does the world mean right now when it's in crisis? Uh, mm. She can tell you what the options might be in with reference to uh, North Korea. She could tell you that very clearly. She'll direct you to a website that tells you all the options about what could happen in North Korea. But can you ask if you ask it, how do people feel in Hawaii when they, they thought they were going to die imminently? Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexa can't do that. Siri can't do that. Mm-hmm. Cortana can't do that. None of them can. Mm-hmm. They can just direct you to a concrete website that will give you people's thoughts about it. But that's something that we have to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned before, um, in terms of the, uh, if we try to, to identify the, the the conditions that the imagination needs in order to be able to flourish. You mentioned time, you mentioned attention. Are there any others that any other things that come to you as kind of vital conditions for the flourishing of the imagination? No, because I think I think those are inter, inter, intricately intertwined. Mm. That, that it's really it, it's almost a lack of attention that you need, not attention. It, it means that you need to refocus your attention inward rather than outward, mm. and inward not to what you're anxious about, but inward toward what what do you feel. And you need to basically turn back on your your emotional network that's all part of the default mode network too mm-hmm. and be able and be able to to see how that is different from what the the attention network is. I don't think we understand that anymore. I think we've really the last ten years kind of gotten into this thing of our life revolves around our phone mm-hmm. and we don't think about not having it um, we don't think about not using it. I mean, it's a rare person that can put their phone in their pocket and not use it for a while. Walked out of a movie the other day, and and I mean, granted, the people in the movie were mostly older, um, and everybody to a one pulled their phone out immediately as they were voting out of the movie. Most of them, not even before they stood up in their seat. <laughs> I, um... Uh, I think that's all my all my questions that I had. I, just if you have any last thoughts about any imagination related thoughts that I haven't asked you a good question for. Um, the only one that, that I thought you were going to ask is is um, what is this going to do to our children's imagination? Because mm-hmm. at least as adults, we've experienced the world without this kind of immediate technology, mm-hmm. and we know what it feels like to imagine. I mean, we've all uh, anybody who's you know more than probably 30 years old or 25 years old has grown up at least without a smartphone, without ubiquitous technology. Um, and yet, what about the kids growing up now, mm. the five-year-olds whose parents hand them an iPad because they're cranky, um, you know, um, who let them watch movies constantly because they can because it makes the kids happy. What are those kids going to be like when they don't get to really experience imagination? They don't get to experience being able to be, you know, just lying around playing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very rare, I think, to find kids that actually just kind of play with toys without direction. They want the, the picture of what it's supposed to look like. 
They want they want to make it right, as opposed to just free play. We don't see a lot of that. And what's the answer? What 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 are we? Uh, what are we um, building up for ourselves in the future? Do you think? Well, I think what we're building up in our future is a group of, of people who will suffer from lack of ability to think abstractly for start for starters. But I think we can do things about this. This is an easier one to solve. Um, number one is parents have to be good role models. And they have to put their phones. It has to be a rule, basically, that the kid doesn't see that the first thing you do in the morning is pick up your phone. Mm. That there has to be really good role modeling if you don't want your kids to end up like you. The other thing is I think it's the easy way to do that is to create technology-free zones in your world. And um, certainly the dinner table, the time everybody's captive audience, you can talk about things, you can bring up topics, get kids to think creatively. What do you think about the state of the world? What do you think about Donald Trump? What do you think about this? You can get kids to think creatively by making there be no technology available for them to not jump on it. The automobile is a good one. I always like that one because you're driving your kids to school. We always just let the kids, or you're driving someplace with the kids, we just give kids an iPad and let them amuse themselves as opposed to going, we could have a discussion. I remember I used to, I used to love driving my kids places um, because we would talk. And the interesting thing is my son, my youngest son is deaf. And so I would have to sign backwards from the front seat to the back seat and sign the words that I was saying to him, but his sister, who's younger, would interpret because I would talk at the same time. So if I screwed up the sign backwards, she'd tell him what I said. <laughs> and we would have discussions in the car. And that was pre-cell phones, of course. And there were no, I mean, that was even pre-DVDs in cars that you could put in a DVD player. They were mm-hmm. just coming out mm-hmm. at that point. Um, and that was a nice technology-free zone. Um, you can have a technology-free zone if you guys watch um, television together, I always encourage parents to watch TV with their kids. It's called co-viewing, and it's it's a good way to t- teach your kids stuff uh, about the world and how it works and how it doesn't work. So if they see something on TV that isn't plausible, you can talk to them about what that means. But it also should be a technology-free zone then. No, no second screens, no second or third screens. We all have second screens. So imagine what you're teaching your kid to do if your t- kid is watching – a TV show, and you're sitting there constantly on your phone, and your kid says something, and you go, just a minute, just a minute, I have to finish this email. Um, kind of, what kind of um, that have? So I think the really issue, the big issue is what are we doing to our young kids in terms of their imagination, creativity? And there are solutions to this. I mean, that's an easier one, I think, to solve, because parents are parents, and they're, they're in charge. Mm-hmm. This is not like the educational system where the kids aren't in charge of the system. The teachers aren't even in charge of the system. This is not like society where somebody's in charge. This is this is a, a clear parenting situation where you are the parent and you are parenting your children. Mm-hmm. You have total control. It's one of the nice things you get when you have kids. You have total control. To a point, of course. Yeah. At which point, then, there's no control. But hopefully, I always tell parents, I used to teach a lot of parent training classes, and I always tell parents that you have until about 12 to really capture them mm. and to teach them 
the world because that's really your job is to teach them how to view the world and how to maneuver in the world. And if we're constantly giving five-year-olds a phone, um, that's problematic. Mm -hmm. And it's it's been quite interesting in the news, uh, certainly over here in the last week or so even, that there's been lots of stuff about about uh, Facebook and the addictive nature of Facebook and mental health issues to do with it. Do you think we're coming, uh, and and then this letter to Apple about about phones? Do you think, uh, you know, have you noticed a rise of interest in 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 your work? Do you think we are there is a growing recognition that this is a is a public health um, issue? I think among journalists there is. I think the journalists see it fairly clearly. I mean, I do, I do tons of interviews on this stuff, and I think that the, the ones who get it are the journalists. The problem is, is that we're writing for people who don't read. Mm -hmm. So in order to do this, it has to be visual. Um, it, ha it has to be really strikingly visual, and that's difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there's some hope that... Um, this is happening now. I mean, it, it is it is encouraging to see people like Tristan Harris. I don't know if you talked to him. Um, no. He has a he's a an ex Google employee um, who wrote a manifesto when he was at Google, basically saying um, we're going about this the wrong way. We're capturing people's attention so much that they're not human anymore, and we need. He formed a quit Google, went off and. Formed a company, a nonprofit called Time Well Spent. Oh yeah, the Time Well Spent guy. Yeah, yeah, and and um, I, I think he's even he and I've chatted a lot over time. We were at a conference together recently, and he's even impressed by these that people are finally catching on, and people are going, "Yeah, Apple should be doing this. Yeah, Google should be doing this. Yeah, we we should make the companies responsible for it. There should be a societal." Pro there should be some societal norms put into place that there aren't anymore. And we try to have them, and we say you can't use phones in certain places. Right? We say that, but people still do it because they can't help themselves. I can pretty much tell you that any – I'm a big movie buff. go to film festivals and stuff, and – Given any movie I've ever been in, I'm sure that there's at least one person during every movie that couldn't stand it anymore, and you see this light shining from underneath their coat. That they're trying to peek at, at any incoming messages. You see it in church. You see it in the grocery store. I saw a policeman in a car next to me. The car was stopped. He was on his phone. <laughs> so, where does it end? You see people in the middle of the street directing traffic. Their phone's right there. You see. I mean, it is, it's ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. It's actually... It's actually charming when you see somebody who says, oh, I don't have a phone or I, I don't use my phone or I can't remember where I left my phone. Yep.